Welcome to the Free Code Camp Podcast. I'm Quincy Larson, and today I'm interviewing Jeff Meyerson, the creator of the Software Engineering Daily Podcast. Jeff grew up in Texas. He played competitive poker, and ultimately he worked as a software engineer at Amazon. We're going to talk about how he got into tech, how he left Amazon to become an entrepreneur, and the many lessons he's learned along the way. All right, Jeff, welcome to the Free Code Camp Podcast. Thank you for having me, Quincy. Jeff, you are somebody that people probably have already heard of. Uh, certainly, if they're learning software development or working as software engineers, they probably have heard of software engineering daily. I want to go way back, way back to the beginning. So you grew up in Austin, Texas? That's right. Yeah, that's uh, one of the most hipster parts of the Southwest. Tell us a little bit about Austin and your origins. Yeah, so I grew up playing Magic the Gathering. That was my most formative early identity. And then I started writing music on the computer. That was my earliest programming related identity. And this all took place in the context of Austin. Austin is a place that I didn't realize growing up, but is very instilled with technology. And a lot of the reason that the the city has flourished is because of money from the technology industry, specifically Dell and, uh, you know, there's Intel and a bunch of other companies there, you know, more recently HomeAway. And so there is this tech backdrop there, but I didn't really experience that growing up. I mostly focused on Magic the Gathering growing up and then um, music and then poker eventually. And school was always kind of in the background never really did very well in school. And so I just didn't really kind of latch on to it. And uh, which is one reason why what you are doing has always resonated with me because much of what you write about in the education system, like I just completely agree with. And, you know, things that I found true later on in in my life are that self-directed education is the way that I personally learn the best. You spent a lot of time early on, as you said, playing Magic the Gathering, playing poker. What are some lessons you learned from these kinds of competitive games that yeah, I would define them as being extremely high skill games where there's a huge dynamic range between people who've never played before and people who are at the top of the field? One of my primary lessons was that zero-sum environments are often best approached from a positive-sum mentality. So if you sit down for a game of magic, you're oftentimes envisioning a zero-sum scenario, but you can frame it as a positive-sum scenario. You can frame it as, we're both here to learn, and secondary to that, there's going to be a winner in this game. But ultimately, and this becomes much more true or much more important in poker, you must realize that the biggest enemy in the game is your darker self and your internal problems that you may or may not be dealing with. All of these games that I played are really about coping with your internal demons, and that's what they boil down to. There's a lot of emotional management stuff, and beyond that, there are opportunities for creativity within well-defined parameters. And that idea of creativity within a defined set of parameters is something that 
laid a foundation for a lot of the things that I'm doing today. So when you describe this battle with yourself, I, I don't play poker, but I hear the term going on tilt, where you essentially become blind to the objective best action and you're kind of locked into this emotional response to a situation. Absolutely. And I had a lot of trouble dealing with that uh, early on. This is one of the main reasons why I, you know, I ultimately hit a wall in my progression with poker is I just, I really had a lot of trouble dealing with those moments when fortune really turns against you uh, in a micro sense and in a macro sense, because the the poker uh, boom eventually ended was it just, you know, I just got destroyed eventually. And it was my own fault. So, you know, there were a lot of sleepless nights in the wake of that where I was just like really thinking a lot about like just how things fell apart. And, you know, that's so that's laid a lot of foundation for how my psychology has evolved since then. So for the benefit of uh, the audience, you've written some great articles about poker and, and how it's influenced you as a software engineer, like the lessons you've learned from it. Can you just give us a really quick overview of your time in poker? Because I know this was a big part of your life. You were spending a lot of time. You A lot of your income was coming from poker and you were approaching it almost with an engineering mindset in terms of trying to maximize the amount of money you could make. Tell us a little bit about that. How did you get started and what were some of your early lessons from playing poker? When I was about 14 or 15, the poker boom started happening, and it became very easy to play poker online. Which year was this, by the way? Let's see, 14 or 15, so that is um, 16 years ago, so that's like 2003, 2004, something like that. I think Chris Moneymaker was 2004, so I maybe, maybe it was a little bit later, so maybe I was 16. The year after Chris Moneymaker won the World Series of Poker... It, the guy who got second place in the World Series of Poker was a guy named David Williams. And David Williams was a magic player from Texas. I had seen him, you know, I had, I, you know, it was, he was a guy who like showed up to some of the lower level tournaments. And he was a very fascinating character, extremely smart, just, just, just shockingly smart. Random side note, I think he actually blurbed. Hasib's poker book later on. Um, that's very random. But uh, so this is a guy who was a magic player and he got second place in the World Series of Poker. And so here I am, like, two, tw- tw- you know, I'm, I'm in, I'm like 16 years old. I'm kind of like doing okay in magic, but like I'm still like a middling player, you know, on, on the national level or on the global scale. Like in Austin, I was a pretty good magic player, but like on a global scale, I was just not very good. And so I was like, you know, kind of looking for something like bigger or, or something where I could flourish more. And, you know, you start to see, you see a guy on TV playing cards and you think like, well, I could be that guy maybe, or like I could, you know, be, be like him perhaps. And like, I don't really know much about this game, but it looks cool. And so I just started playing, you know, online. I think I started playing with play money or free money or something. And then, you know, from there, it just like I latched onto it and I realized, oh my God, there's such depth 
to this game, and it's been around for even longer than Magic. And I had always taken a pretty academic approach to Magic. I had read everything I could find about it. I would spend hours in bookstores just reading everything I could find about Magic, and like I would go to Half Price Books, which was a used bookstore, because that was the only place I could find these out-of-print books about Magic. And what I found in poker was that there's even more literature. And so I just went down the rabbit hole, and I just read and read and read and read. And I remember... Uh, actually, my senior year of high school, there was a physics class that I failed because every day in class, I would just have my like, just like a scene, like I saw this in Calvin and Hobbes, actually, uh, you know, like the, the comic book where like you have the uh, the textbook out and then like inside it, you have like another book that you're actually reading. And so I was like literally doing this in class and it was like, you know, really inappropriate because basically like I, it's so obvious, like who reads with a book sort of like just on their desk, a textbook on their desk in the middle of class while the lecturer is going, it's just very obvious that I had another book in front of it. Uh, <laughs> and so that book, if I recall, was Harrington on Hold'em volume five or something. And so, you know, I just read all these books because it was so fun. I mean, I think this is a time when a lot of people in like pro- people who became programmers uh, in high school were reading, you know, Alan Kay or, um, you know, some of these famous programming books you know, just at this time in your in your in your maturity, where you start to realize that the education system is totally broken, and you're wasting your time if you're actually you know paying attention in class. So your time is better spent just like educating yourself and just like barely, you know, going above water in 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 school. So I went very deep into the poker literature, and I just was enraptured by the game. And actually, I think this served me poorly in a certain way because. I took a, there's this romantic notion to uh, to poker playing, like especially in in the books that you read uh, about it, just about like these wily Texans driving around, you know, barely escaping death because there's like robbers and stuff who like break into the games and and they take this sort of academic like heroic approach to telling the stories of the game when in fact the game is much more productively viewed through a almost purely quantitative lens. And I I mean, there's obviously the psychological aspect too, but definitely you don't want the romantic notion. You definitely don't want to see yourself as this tragic slash heroic figure or something, because then you get just like caught up in this romantic notion that's like just not productive. So So that was something that was counterproductive, but like I did have this quantitative approach and because that was like what David Sklansky, who was a mathematician turned poker player, that was what he recommended in The Theory of Poker, uh, which is a book I d- didn't really understand at the time, but was groundbreaking. It was such a fun time. You know, I was just buried in the literature and uh, and buried in the literature during school and before I went to bed. And every moment where I actually had, you know, energy, I was pretty much like playing poker online. Wow. So this became kind of an all-encompassing, all-consuming aspect of your life, Uh, this identity as a a poker player. And you said this was, you were in Texas, which Texas Hold'em probably uh, created within a few hundred miles of you. So what was this progression like with poker starting to become an all-consuming aspect of your life? You were reading books uh, and you started playing online and this was during the poker boom. Uh, you were in Texas. Uh, you were had a Texas uh, Magic the Gathering player turned poker runner-up in the World Series of Poker as an inspiration. So, h- how did you go from 
being mildly interested in poker to being like hardcore making a lot of money and spending a lot of money on poker? It's kind of a blur. I mean, I just, I saw this thing that I could succeed at and it actually was earning me some respect, like even at school. Because if you remember around this time, people were really getting into poker. And so there would be these poker games like after school or at lunch, you know, you'd go and play poker at lunch. And I was never athletic, right? So I was not like succeeding in like basketball or something. But in these games, I was able to just like destroy, you know? So it's like very validating to sit down at like the poker game with the football players and just destroy them. So, you know, that that was that was part of it that was really cool. There was also this this mentor that I had uh, named Lan Ho. And Lan was a guy I had met playing Magic. He's a brilliant student of pop culture and um and he brought that that study of pop culture to the study of the poker world. And so he had the same kind of literary bent towards understanding the world of poker that I did. And he kind of took me under his wing and and we we just we would play a lot of one-on-one poker together and we would we would play a lot of esoteric versions of poker so you know poker is interesting because it's it's not a single game it's actually many many games that you can invent and so we would play like five card stud and we would invent games like two card stud or three card stud or you know eight card stud i don't know we would play all these really really weird variants and we would start with weird chip stacks and you know integrate other you know things and we would like like i would go over to his his apartment and this was kind of like this might sound weird because like i was like a you know 16 or 17 year old kid and he's this guy who's like 28 or 29 or something uh we had just met you know when i was playing magic because he was a very good magic player as well you know i didn't really get along super well with anybody my age and so you know i latched on to him as, as a friend and a mentor and so we would just hang out at his at his apartment like just playing poker and watching poker until like one in the morning. And then I would like, you know, drive home in my mom's car and like super caffeinated. We we drink coffee late into the night and it was just, it was so fun. I just have such warm memories about that time. And, uh, and yeah. And then eventually like the whole college thing rolled around and I was like, Oh yeah, I have this college thing. I guess I should do that. Yeah, so you went to UT Austin, which is a really good school. How did you get into that if you were not really focused on academics in high school? <laughs> I had to transfer. I actually, for a year, I went to UTSA, UT San Antonio, because UT has this constraint, or they did at the time, where only the top 10% of the graduating class gets into UT. And like my, gra- like my grades from my school you know, were just like, <laughs> you know, bottom 50th percentile or something like that, you know? And uh, so I had to go to UTSA for a year, San Antonio. And uh, so I took classes there and you had to get like a min- some minimum GPA and then you could transfer into UT Austin. Uh, so I did that. And uh, that was an interesting year because I would like basically, you know, play poker all day in San Antonio and like the classes I could do well in the classes actually, despite playing poker. So yeah, I made the I made the required uh, GPA to transfer, and I made it to Austin. Awesome! And tell us a little bit about Austin. So, so you said you you grew up in Austin, and then you had to 
transfer out and, and now you're coming back to Austin, but you're coming as a university student. That's right. Yeah. What was that experience like? Um, I mean, I, I, it got hard. Like academia got hard. I was like trying to jug- juggle classes and poker at the same time. And at the same time, the poker boom was dissolving, you know, and I was sort of starting to suffer from not having a normal social life. I was starting to take philosophy classes because I was like, I guess I'll study philosophy because I, you know, had a bunch of friends on the two plus two forums who said like philosophy was good for poker. Yeah, I mean, school was just so boring. And but, you know, you're supposed to do it right. And so I was there and I was not making good use of my time there. I think, I, you know, school is school can be exciting if you if you frame it the right way. And I was not framing it the right way. And I was playing poker. So. Yeah. I mean, I met Hasib around this time, so that was really cool. Yeah, and you mentioned Hasib earlier. If you can just give us a very quick introduction to Hasib Qureshi and you know what kind of person he is, how you yeah. all have known one another. I mean, anybody who's listened to his interviews or like spoken with him or seen his lectures or read his blogs or whatever you know he has the famous blogs about going through a coding boot camp and like negotiating the salary on airbnb or with airbnb and stuff and like i just knew him back when i met him playing poker online i just always respected him a lot because he was such a sharp thinker within the game and um you know as he took philosophy classes he became a very sharp thinker outside of the game as well and you know the thing that always stands out with Hasib is how crisp his thinking is and how quick he is so this was very true in poker he was such a dominant force in poker you know he started really succeeding at the game in a kind of meteoric way around the same time that i was beginning to fail in the game and so so our paths only really crossed in the poker world for kind of a brief period of time because I was sort of like struggling, you know, and like if you're on the up upswing like he was and you, you know, you meet somebody who's like kind of struggling in the game, it's not the greatest conditions to develop like a friendship, you know. So we had this like kind of weird relationship. I mean, it was like it was definitely a friendship, but it was it was weird. It's like, you know, I'm sure there are people who, you know, have been in situations where, like, they played varsity sports or something, and then there's, like, somebody on the varsity team who's just, like, going to the NFL. And it's, like, the relationship that you're going to form with somebody when they're about to go to the NFL, and you're kind of like, yeah, I'm not going to the NFL. Like, maybe I'll play college. Like, hopefully. It's just a different relationship. So there was this gulf there, right? Because, like, he was so much better at the game than I was, and that created a real like gap between us but what's cool is that you know this gap was kind of later remedied to some extent now we're friends right and we live in the same city like we live within a mile of each other and it's very weird because we both have this shared background that we don't really share anymore but it's it creates this shared background which is just invaluable i mean you realize this as you get older like whatever you you grow up with friends right you grow up with these people or not everybody has you know friends but like if you grow up with friends and you keep those friends close then eventually like you realize okay these people have known me for a long time and that in and of itself is a valuable enough reason to keep in contact with these people because we can just sort of ping pong ideas off of each other and we have all this shared context this shared background 
And Asim and I have that in a very unique way, which is that we both grew up in the poker boom. I was talking to him recently, and there was some, we just like, there, you know, it's like these people where you can just draw, like pull a really, really weird abstract analogy out of a hat, and they'll understand it because you're referencing some combination of things that, or combination of experiences that you, you shared from a long time ago. You know, it's so cool to have those people, those kinds of people that stick around in your life. Yeah, that's a that's a thing that 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 Hasib and I, you know, can share in our conversations. I guess it is really interesting how you two were both heavy on poker, and then was he at UT Austin as well? He was, but he was studying philosophy, and he dropped out for a while because he was just destroying at poker. Um, he was like, I'm just going to focus on this thing. Uh, and so, actually, around the time I was graduating, like I had shifted into computer science. Uh, and I was graduating finally. Hasib had st- Hasib was studying philosophy, or I think he ended up studying English, and uh, so he graduated with English. And uh, we were just like in very different mental spaces. That's why our time in Austin really didn't have a ton of overlap. Yeah. So, at what point did you kind of stop playing poker and shift mostly to focus on getting better with you know your actual coursework and learning computer science and and getting better at programming? Man, I had a lot of trouble with it even through senior year of college, because I was taking my first two or three internships and I was starting to realize like just how good I had had it in poker relative to what a corporate job offers you, where you have this fixed upside, you've got to go to an office, you've got to like adhere to these just silly, silly norms. And so, you know, there were a couple times where I sort of was like, maybe I'll just go back to poker and I'll try to do that. But that was really painful too, because I was like, I, this is this seems awful, and it just seems like robotic. And so I was like, kind of like trying to find what I was going to do. I mean, that was around the time I found Quora, and so I was like, that was when I wrote a lot of my earliest Quora answers, and and they were really terrible. But you know, Quora was quite a useful community because you could see these alternative paths that people had taken and and or you you saw i started to see this thing called entrepreneurship um and right and and just not to interrupt your flow too much but for people who aren't familiar with quora just give us a high level explanation of what quora is and how you got involved with it well first of all that's where you and i met quora is a question and answer based community so it's social networking meets intellectualism growing up i had done the two plus two forums, which is the best place to talk about poker online. And it was a very strange merit driven community of intellectuals who are trying to get better at poker. Quora was kind of like that because Quora was Quora is this gamified social network where the game is to share your knowledge and you gain clout by sharing your knowledge in a way that gets people to click on it and check it out and read it comment on it just especially in that those early days you probably remember this or you know i mean you were really on the you were on the content hustle i think you were like the number one quora person basically um so you were just you were just owning it you were very methodical it was so much smaller back then because like their beachhead market was silicon valley entrepreneurs and giving them a place to share their their thoughts and and talk with each other and so you had this germ of a community that was really, really smart. A lot of people had been super successful in tech, 
And I was just kind of entering it, and I was like, well, I don't know much I can write about. Like, I was getting very heavily into electronic music at the time, like composing music, and so I was writing some about composing music. I found that, like, writing about poker resonated with people because I was writing about poker, but, like, at the same time, I was moody about poker. Like, I was trying to overcome my experience with poker, so I wrote about a little bit about literature and philosophy and some kind of self-helpy stuff, and it was just... I was really trying to find my narrative voice, but yeah, I mean, it was great. It was such a great resource uh, back then. You were answering questions on Quora, and at this point, you had already you said you'd done a few internships. Where did you intern at, by the way? First internship was Spiceworks. Second one was eBay. Third one, no, I didn't have a third one. It was Spiceworks and eBay. Spiceworks for two semesters, and then eBay. Spiceworks was a pretty cool company, still still going in Austin, sort of like an IT based social network. It's like social networking for sysadmins, kind of. Pretty interesting. Yeah, and is that pretty typical for people who are getting CS degrees at UT Austin to have multiple internships? Were you pretty typical in that regard of having two internships for, I guess you said, like three or four semesters that you were doing it? Yeah, yeah. Pretty standard. Was it hard to get those internships? Yeah, I think I recall it being hard. I recall it being pretty difficult, actually. I mean, the whole job search process is just awful. Uh, and that was my first exposure to how awful it was. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this is like sort of the tail end of your undergraduate. Uh, you're getting the CS degree. And when you finished, so you started doing Quora before you even finished college? I did, yes, at the very tail end of college. Okay. And then, of course, the dreaded part when you graduate and you have to suddenly figure out where you're going to go and work. Tell us a little bit about your job search after graduation. Well, my job search happened before graduation. There was a company called Peak Six that visited campus and I got an interview with them. I ended up talking to the CTO, this guy Ryan, who was just crazy sharp and he asked me some interesting questions. They were provocative. They were fun to answer. Uh, and they were related to trading. And I had been studying trading a little bit, been reading some books about it because I was thinking, yeah, maybe this is the thing I'll do. Uh, and so, you know, Peak Six was like a combination trading place plus hedge fund plus like. So trading like equities? Yeah. And, and stocks and bonds? Yeah. Stocks, bonds, options, which was really cool, like really interesting. I got pretty deep into that. Uh, and I sort of learned how this whole finance like trading stuff works. So that was fun. And then I, so they gave me a job offer and I was like, yeah, sure. And they were in Chicago. So I went to Chicago. That was actually the first place I went out of school. Yeah. Chicago, uh, a lot of people may not realize this, but it's one of the biggest financial markets in the world, especially, I guess, if you're dealing with like derivatives and stuff, that's where the uh, mercantile exchange is. Correct. What was that experience like being in Chicago? Cold. I mean, initially it was very, very temperate weather when I moved out. I should have had some foresight about that, but I very much just wanted to move on with my life because I was very, I was kind of entering a dark place near the end of college. I was just very unsure of what the heck I was going to be doing and just very remorseful about my inability to succeed at poker and just feeling pretty morose overall and so i just was kind of just blindly feeling around for anything that i could grapple onto and so i you know i got this job offer and i was like okay i'm, I'm hightailing it to chicago so i go to chicago 
Um, you know, I start my, my job in summer. Chicago is really nice in the summer. I would spend a lot of time outside. Didn't really ha- know anybody. Didn't really have any friends there. Spent a lot of time on Quora. Wrote a lot of Quora answers. You know, became Quora top writer. And I was starting to learn options trading and like programmatic options trading and how a tech company that trades options is managed, which is fascinating. I have not done a lot of shows on this. I need to do some shows on this. But like the way that trading companies work is very different than kind of like Silicon Valley product style companies. And it's it's quite an interesting Petri dish because there's so much money at stake that the people they bring in are amazingly talented. They're like, you know, Google level, Amazon level engineers, but they're just like cut from a very different cloth. And so I learned kind of that style of engineering. And I, you know, I was just not enjoying it very much. I just remember this day where I opened up Hacker News and, you know, I was starting to read Hacker News at the time and I saw a bunch of cool things people had been building. And then I kind of tabbed over to my, you know, unit tests I was writing for the options trading system. And it just sounded cooler to be building stuff. And so I, you know, became disillusioned pretty quickly. And and then at the same time, it got very cold in Chicago. Uh, December rolled around, or November rolled around, or maybe it was even October. I don't remember how early it gets super cold, but it became quite bitter. So I moved uh, back to Austin after after five months. Wow. So the combination of it being cold and you just not feeling like what you were doing was super impactful, um, writing unit tests for options trading. And just for some context, Austin does not get very cold. I don't how how frequently does it <laughs> snow in Austin? Ah, uh, you know, actually, once every three years, once every two years, something like that. It definitely snows in Austin. Sometimes it gets pretty cold in Austin, but yeah, I mean, it's not cold like Chicago. Chicago is like bitterly cold <laughs> and windy. Yeah, yeah. So you don't know anybody in the city. You've been there for five months. It's getting really cold outside. You're you're seeing the proverbial grass that's greener on the other side. You bolt. You leave. You resign your position, and you just move back to Austin. That's right. Yeah. And what do you do when you hit the ground in Austin? Uh, well, I shacked up with an old poker friend, uh, my friend Sam, and uh, you know, Sam was a great person to live with at the time when I was basically out of a job. Um, you know, kind of struggling to find out what the heck I was going to be doing. Sam is just this relentlessly positive force. He's a really good engineer. He's not a software engineer. He's like a civil engineer. But, um, you know, I owe him a lot because he was just kind of a a very, um, you know, like you're the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. And I just started spending all my time with Sam. And so he was like relentlessly positive. So that was like very invigorating. You know, I spent a lot of time in Austin, like writing music, kind of like letting my savings just sort of dwindle out and, uh, and then sort of began desperately looking for jobs around uh, around the United States. <laughs> That's what I did in Austin. So when you start looking for jobs around the United States as somebody who only has five months work experience but does have a CS degree, what's the job search like? Um, desperate, you know? Like, <laughs> uh, I was, like, looking on Craigslist and, like, Hired.com and all the different, you know, places you can be hired on. I was like practicing interview problems. I was practicing career cup, the Gail Lockman McDowell site. Right. You know, I was doing these things, but I was, you know, very disillusioned with it. Cause I, 
Yeah, and then I was just applying to jobs, and you know, I was getting flown out sometimes, and then you know, not getting offers, and then eventually I got flown out to this one company in Seattle that was doing ad tech, and they gave me an offer, and uh, I was like, yes, I will take it. I'm running out of money. Please give me a job. You know, you're a Java shop. I'm in. Let's do it. Uh, so I moved to Seattle. Right on. And so you're in Seattle. You're doing ad tech, which, of course we'll explore later, but becomes a major part of your specialization as a developer and uh, an entrepreneur. What was that like being in Seattle, which is not quite as cold as Chicago, but is still very different from Austin. What I liked about Seattle was I was starting to get a picture for what my attitude should be if I wanted to succeed. And I started listening to a lot of self-help audiobooks. Like, by the way, once again, I was basically moving to a place where I had like no friends. I had I had some friends there. I kind of found some friends. You know, I had a few close friends, but you know, we didn't we spent intermittent amounts of time together. So like I was very much alone with my cats. And I just started listening to a lot of self-help books and listening to a lot of podcasts. You know, I found Seth Godin's podcast uh, near the end of college, and I always pay attention to Seth Godin. I found This Week in Startups and A16Z and all these different things, you know, YouTube, and just started consuming tons of, like, kind of self-help-related content, and at the same time would consume a lot of software engineering radio. Uh, I was podcasting on software engineering radio at the time. I forgot to mention I had started doing that. You know, the self-help combination together with information about startups and and engineering really like invigorated me because I started to see these paths that people had followed that gave me like a light at the end of the tunnel. So you're somebody who is certainly capable of like looking at aggregate data and like, for example, the number of people who go out and get successful careers after studying at UT Austin and, and uh, go into software engineering and things like that. But did you find actually hearing the stories of people in podcast form was a source of inspiration for you? Yes, 100%. And that's one of the big reasons why with the Free Code Camp podcast and with a lot of things we do, we try to contextualize a lot of these big statistics that I think most people realize to be true, like there are a ton of developer jobs out there and put them in the form of these stories because it can be so much more inspiring to actually kind of hear how somebody went through this process than to just know that it's possible. Once you actually see that people are doing it, then it, it's almost like internally you you feel it in your in your bones, like I can do this too. And, and this is one thing I realized was so magical about podcasting. It's just something you don't get from like other forms i mean you get it i guess you get it from 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 like video interviews also but just because the consumption format's so passive and you can just consume it all the time when you're doing other stuff like you're toiling away at whatever your other thing is like the other thing that's occupying your hands or it's sort of like passive communication between between people so it's like it keeps you company in in a weird a weird like you know, her kind of way, but her being a reference to the, <laughs> the movie. Yes, exactly. Excellent movie. If you haven't seen it. <laughs> exactly. I mean, well, the guy, he gets just this pervasive like entertainment module 
uh, or like they keep some company. That's that's the the thing. That's and I was like, cool. I have that with podcasts. It's like instead of this nice female voice assistant, I have like you know this cadre of characters that I listen to in podcast form, uh, which is almost as good. Um, you know, you don't have the romantic element, but well, yeah, I mean, you have the inspiring element and you have, you have voices to keep you company and kind of just, you know, give you some solace that like other people have been in situations where they wanted something, they wanted to move their life towards something different. And I think that like, again, this is why I think you and I have gotten along pretty well is that that's what free code camp represents is this is a community a set of paths that you can follow. It's loosely directed. It's a guide to finding some backbone in yourself. And, you know, that's what I've gotten out of podcasts is just like, it's just helpful. It's helpful for, for building your backbone, you know? So at this point, you were in Seattle. You were listening to a lot of self-help. You were also um, listening to a lot of podcasts and, you know, Seth Godin, uh, somebody that if you haven't heard of them, you should definitely check them out. And you had started to volunteer as a kind of guest host on Software Engineering Radio. Tell us a little bit about Software Engineering Radio. Software Engineering Radio is such an important institution to me. Robert Blumen, who runs Software Engineering Radio, he's the editor uh, of the podcast. He did not start it, but he took over the reins something like 13 years ago, maybe, for the guy that started it, Marcus Volter. And it is a long-form podcast about software engineering. It's a place where you can hear conversations about Kafka and Hadoop and distributed systems and JavaScript and everything in the world of software engineering. I started listening to it in college, and I found it to be transformative because it brought so much context and practical application and conversationality to what at the time was a totally academic pursuit, which was you know computer science taught at the university level. It, it was shocking to me how different the conversations I was hearing on this podcast about supposedly applied computer science like how different that was from the conversations that would take place in the ivory tower. And, you know, that disconnect has really stuck with me for quite a long time. So Robert Blumen, who runs Software Engineering Radio, he interviewed me, like, you know, I I, I sent him an email and I was like, hey, I, I want to be part of the show because he had, he had had a call on the show for, for uh, like, guest hosts. They were a totally volunteer show. And, you know, he got on the phone with me. This was back in college. Uh, and, um, you know, we talked and I was like, look, I'm just like a terrible software engineer. I know nothing, but like, I I'll, I'll do whatever you tell me, just like, let me interview people. Uh, and so he gave me a shot and, you know, I did the, the first five interviews and he let me stay on. And so I kept doing interviews and like, I kept getting like slightly better and slightly better. And, um, I just never stopped doing it. And then there was this, this one year where I, uh, I think this was when I was living in Seattle, actually, I flew to San Francisco for the first time. And I, you know, I met Robert and I just found him to be one of the most interesting thinkers I had ever met. And I still feel that way today. You know, you, you, if you listen to software engineering radio, you may not hear this because he's, he's mostly just asking questions and he's very much putting himself in the background. But the guy is just a, he's been a transformative influence on me in, in the way that he asks questions, the way that he has, he has managed the show 
I'm just indebted to him. I started flying to San Francisco more often and actually staying with him uh, and his wife. And it was always just, it was like another set of parents in, in a weird way. I mean, I love my parents. They've been tremendously influential on me, but it was like this other set of parents, uh, which is very weird. I mean, or unusual, but it was always this super warm environment. You know, Robert would, would, you know, just let me sleep in his guest room and then like, would cook these incredibly good meals and we would have these incredible conversations about software podcasting and podcasting more broadly and like podcast advertising and like some of these conversations kind of formed the backbone for thinking about like maybe I should think about this as a career like I am really just in love with this weird world of podcasting about software software engineering radio that is the godfather of software engineering podcasts, and it continues to be an incredibly valuable and sustained force in the world of software engineering podcasting. You're in Seattle. You've been guest posting with Software Engineering Radio, and, and thanks for filling us in all of that context. I didn't even know that Robert Blumen was in the Bay Area. I listen to a lot of episodes of it just over the years, and and often it'll be like European interviewers. So I, I always assumed that it was a European organization. That's how it started. I and mean, Marcus Volter is German. So you're in Seattle. You're working for this ad tech company. Take us from there. Like uh, I know there's another big Seattle company that you worked for, living in the future. Uh, yep. But yeah, how did Absolutely. you how did you go from working in ad tech to working at Amazon? AdTech was very interesting. I found out that AdTech is basically like a more multidimensional world, a more multidimensional version of options trading. Because the way that AdTech works is every time you see an ad on the page, there's an auction that's occurring in the background. And that's essentially the same thing that's occurring at scale in options trading is, you know, there's bids and asks and these things are getting matched and there's all kinds of like vendors in the middle that are taking little pieces of money. And ad tech, strangely, is the same thing. Uh, there's a bunch of people who are bidding for your attention. There's also a bunch of fake traffic. And this is the thing that sort of just started to blow my mind was just the level of fraud in ad tech. It was just like mind boggling how much fraud I was seeing. And, you know, I started covering this a little bit in Software Engineering Daily later on, just the amount of fraud in ad tech. And I was like, this is just like shocking to me. Nobody seems to care. It's it's just, it's weird. That's, yeah, it's a separate phenomenon. But I realized pretty quickly that this was just, you know, this was, this was trading all over again. And I just didn't want to be a part of it. I just, sure, it fulfills an important purpose. Uh, it's great business, very interesting code but just not the problems I wanted to be solving. And so I was rampantly applying to jobs and just looking for opportunities. And and yeah, I mean, I should say like that ad tech company, I learned a lot there. I found some great coworkers, some great friends. I learned, I just, you know, it was, it was a valuable organ. It was a valuable experience for me, just like Peak Six was. Just, I just knew it wasn't what I should be doing. Uh, so yeah, I applied to a ton of jobs, eventually got Amazon and I got an offer. Uh, after you know going through the interview process awesome so what was your life like at amazon <laughs> the way i describe it is like amazon was like a museum to me uh like a museum in the sense that it's a place where i wanted to observe i wanted to see the things that were on offer in the museum 
but I did not want to work there. I realized this pretty quickly. I mean, this was unfortunate timing because I was just listening to all these entrepreneurship podcasts and, you know, I was just like learning that anybody can be an entrepreneur, like you should probably be an entrepreneur or you should at least try it or like have some flavor of entrepreneurship somewhere in your life. Um, and a lot of that entrepreneurship is due, like a lot of the available capture for entrepreneurship is due to Amazon because of Amazon Web Services. Being inside, you know, I read the Everything Store uh, twice, which is the book about Amazon. That book is just incredible because you learn about the principles that underlie this organization. And then obviously, you know, you learn these things inside the organization as well. You learn them firsthand when you're writing code for the organization and figuring out how the bureaucracy works and how ideas are spread within the company. There was this moment I realized where like I was just, I shouldn't be there. And the moment was I was talking to a coworker and I was saying to him like, hey man, like, did you see the new AWS service? Um, you know, it's like really cool like imagine all the the money that that you could make if you did like this business like this Amazon web services thing together with this other protocol or this other like API and then you've got Stripe and then you can just like make your own business and like wouldn't that be cool and he's like hey man like i i got to go work on my like i got to go work on my service like i got to go work on my internal service that's like calculating something you know or like doing some back end process for you know Amazon orders or Amazon shipping or some like very subtle element of the uh, software infrastructure. And thank God we have people like that, right? Like, thank God we have people that that is, that's what they want to be doing. Those people are putting together the systems that allow you to get same-day delivery. That's awesome. I like same-day delivery, but like, I don't want to be the one that builds the back-end infrastructure to keep that thing running. And so that's just the sentiment that I started to feel within Amazon. Like, And the other thing was, I've touched on this, a little bit before on, on the podcast, but just the idea that at a company like Amazon, you personally have a ton of leverage because the company's infrastructure gives you that leverage. And the fact that if you make a change, you know, you can save the company millions and millions of dollars, but you yourself are only going to capture a small fraction of the upside there. So I didn't like that per small percentage capture. Yeah. And a lot of that I think is just the nature of being a human being. Like you only need so much money to be able to provide for your family and have a comfortable life so that you can continue to work, <laughs> right? So a company, like whether you're generating millions of dollars a year in value for an organization, like you look at Google and I think like the average employee, if you, if you take their total profits and divide it across like all their employees, you come out to like a million dollars or more a year, but the average employee at Google only makes a small fraction of that. Do you think a lot of that has to do with companies being able to take advantage of the fact that People only need so much money to be comfortable, and yet the potential upside can be dramatically greater. I don't think of it as taking advantage. It's just like it's like a matching problem. Yeah, taking advantage may be not not the best word for that because taking advantage has a negative connotation. But just seeing that that is all they need to output, and that that's a, you know an optimal solution for them, as opposed to the employees not necessarily even knowing that they could be capturing more of that value themselves. So I think there's definitely something here where a lot of employees don't realize their upside potential. And some people don't want to be don't even want to hear that they have more upside potential because to be told that is to be told that you know like maybe maybe you should be like thinking more broadly like maybe you shouldn't be looking at this 
industry where you're like swinging from vine to vine, you know, climb or climbing the career ladder, you know, from jumping from one big company to the next. Some people don't want to do entrepreneurship. Like some people don't want to do that stuff. And the people that opt out of it, like it's awesome that they have an option. It's an it's awesome that they can go work at Amazon and and then do whatever they want aside from that. And they don't have to like, you know, like you and I are our, our, our lives, you know, we, we have like firefighting and like we're just kind of grinding on the business all the time. And like if we sleep on it for a bit, the business could fall apart. And like that's that lifestyle is not for everyone. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm conflicted. Like, I've I've gone from being much more opinionated about this to just kind of being like, yeah, I mean, different strokes for different folks. Well, let's talk a little bit about it. I want to jump forward in the chronology a little bit. We can come back to talk about your time at Amazon, but I'm really interested. This is an interesting point to talk about your talk that you gave in Israel last month. You are not a commodity, I think is the title of your talk, and it's about software engineers and their potential ability to do way more than they're doing in their current employment capacity. Right. My perspective here is that there are pressures, you know, for me, it was as early as the university that you should see yourself as a commodity or a replaceable cog in the wheel. Um, you are an SDE too. You're, you're an entry-level software engineer. You're a database person, uh, you're a DevOps person, you're a VP of sales, blah, blah, blah. You're one of these like switchable, fungible roles. That's useful to some degree because this, I mean, you think about basketball, right? Like there's a power forward, I think, and there's like a, uh, I don't know, like a, a, a normal forward. There's yeah, like a forward, a, guard, point guard. Yeah, guard. You've got these Fair. different roles. And that's not demeaning, right? And then, you know, we all need roles to describe ourselves or to describe what we do within the context of a team. So that's great. You know, you have foot soldiers, you have generals, and so on. It scares me that people get really wrapped up in these identities sometimes, or even the identity of like, I'm an Amazon engineer. Like, what do you do? I'm an Amazon engineer. You know, like, that's not who you are. Like, you're much more than that. You know, you've got a bundle of experiences. You've got a unique DNA profile. And in the context of software, there's so much software that's waiting to be written. This is, you know, coming back to the positive sum mentality, software is in such an infantile state. And... We need many, many, many more pieces of software. We need much, much better software. We need more software engineers. We need more people who can create the ideas for the software engineers to build. Maybe those are the software engineers themselves. You are not a commodity thing is is kind of like a plea for individuality. It's a love of individuality. It's It comes from a place of... You know, when I'm sitting down to have a conversation with somebody, I want to know what makes them unique. I want to know their unique perspectives. Uh, even if we're talking about Cassandra, or we're talking about MongoDB, or we're talking about engineering management, or we're talking about JavaScript, 
everybody's got their own opinions. Everybody's got their own perspectives. Everybody's got their own sense of humor. And like, I just, I can't get enough of the, the uniqueness that is on offer in the, the world of humanity. And I just think in, in software engineering, there's so much unexplored uniqueness that it's a tragedy that some people spend their whole career in a single technology and, and don't really learn the bigger picture. Yeah. And I mean, you know, that sentiment is tied up in software engineering daily as well. That's why like it explores so many different topics is I want to give people a taste of all the different topics that are on offer so that they can explore the subsets and the synergies between those technologies and find something that resonates with them. Yeah. And most innovation comes through recombination, taking a lot of different perspectives and a lot of different fields and finding some interesting union of them yes. that you can explore further. I agree. So we'll get back to software engineering daily in a little bit, but I just want to hear a little bit more about your time at Amazon. You see, you were there for a little under a year. What, what were some of the big takeaways from your time there? Philosophy matters. Um, Amazon is driven by its leadership principles those leadership principles can be found uh, on Amazon's website, and they underpin the way that the company works. And they're philosophical things. Uh, it's it, you know they're like frugality, for example, and uh, and you just see these things throughout the company. So it's almost like the Ten Commandments of Amazon, sort of. Amazon is a place of invention, and that's what I found inspiring about it. Um, it's Amazon is able to to juggle all of these different businesses partly because Amazon represents the recognition that we live in a special time where people have more individual leverage and therefore inventions can be spun up within the company and uh, can be led by very small teams. They can be scaled. Uh, they can be managed like a portfolio of companies. And that portfolio approach to managing invention. I think of Amazon sometimes as sort of like Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, except instead of buying businesses, Amazon just builds them. So Amazon just says, hey, we need a, a relational database. Should we go acquire a relational database? Yeah, let's just build one. You know, and that's cool. You know, they say, hey, Netflix is a great business. Should we buy Netflix? Yeah, let's just build it. That is so cool. And so I've tried to bring that to my own personal ethos, uh, where if I think of a cool idea, I kind of just say, well, should I, should, I just, should I just make that? I mean, do I have time to make that? Do I have the resources to make that? I mean, I don't have that much money, but can, can I do it? Are the, are the cloud resources cheap enough? Are the APIs good enough? What's different? Is there something different that I can take advantage of? And with so much change going on in the world of software, you can just like go browse Product Hunt, go browse Rapid API, go find these different places where there's these new things that are platforms and tools and picks and shovels, and you just pick them up and you're like, oh, what can I do with this? And you build something. And if it's if it's like useful software, chances are it runs itself to a certain extent, or it makes enough money that you can hire somebody to manage it. And that is really inspiring. So Amazon is an engine of that at, at massive, massive scale. But it also represents the enablement of the individual entrepreneur or the individual author. I mean, we, we can't forget Amazon started as this bookstore. And it's become this platform for authors. 
uh, and then creators, you know, through Amazon Studios and, you know, through Twitch. And it's just, so I see it as this vessel of creativity, this set of mantras around invention and creativity and uh, purpose. You know, I, I see it as, as Jeff Bezos's brilliant strategic vision and his level of ambition. I don't know, the embodiment of the things that he says. Given your high esteem for Amazon, how did you go about leaving and why? Well, again, it comes back to this museum thing, right? Like you go to a museum and you're like, this is really cool. All right, I'm going home, <laughs> you know? As soon as I realized it wasn't for me, I just was like charting my course. And around that time, I had the idea for Software Engineering Daily. I actually th- was so sure that somebody else would do Software Engineering Daily. I was like, this idea is just, it's too good. Somebody's going to do it. I shouldn't leave Amazon because somebody else is just going to do this idea. And they're going to do it better than I will. And I thought that for three months. And then I left the company because I decided I was just going to do it myself. So it was more like, you know, once I saw the the thing to be doing, I just pursued it. Awesome. Uh, cheers to your uh, decisiveness. I think a lot of people worry about competition more than they should, just as a personal aside. Like the Wikipedia founder, Jimmy Wales, frequently talks about how he thought surely somebody else would just come up with a better encyclopedia and completely crush Wikipedia. And for years, he would just like look over his shoulder, you know, worried that some that some competitor was going to come out of nowhere and overtake Wikipedia. But that just never happened. And I know that, uh, you know, one of Amazon's core focuses is focusing on customers instead of competitors. You, at that point, you were already a contributor to Software Engineering Radio, uh, which is a direct kind of spiritual predecessor, Software Engineering Daily, I guess. What was that initial spin-up time for you like with getting Software Engineering Daily running? Pretty short. I knew how to podcast at that point, and... I just asked Robert Blumen. I was like, hey, man, I'm just going to like copy this format and make it daily. Is that cool with you? Like, I'm going to go find advertisers. It's going to be my business. Like, you're welcome to contribute if you want to. And he was like, yeah, go for it. Like, good luck. <laughs> uh, and so I did it. And, um, you know, I left Amazon. I started Software Engineering Daily, like, within a week or two weeks or something. And, you know, just started emailing people, bought a microphone, yeah, I had a little bit of money saved up. I calculated that if I got, you know, I, I had enough cash to survive for four months. And then I figured if I get break even by then, I'm going to really enjoy my life. And I got break even in two months. So pretty short spin up time. That's awesome. So you were really able to minimize your risk because podcasting has a pretty established business model. You, out, you go out, you get sponsors, and you were able to get sponsors within that two month period. Correct. So Robert gave you a blessing. Had he tried a daily format for software engineering radio or anything? I mean, the audacity of doing a podcast every weekday. uh, I think that's something few people would have the stomach for over a longer period of time. I mean, sure, a lot of people might just dive in and say, I can do this and do it for a few weeks and then burn out. But I mean, you've really done it. Like how many, how many episodes have you published total so far? Do you have a ballpark figure on that? I think like 1200. 1200 in in four years yeah that's pretty remarkable so you have this uh four month runway you reach break even within two months what do you do then i was just like i just wanted to i want the music to keep playing like i felt like i had found i felt it you know like i felt like i had found the thing 
the thing that I had been missing ever since poker stopped being that thing. And uh, so I just wanted the music to keep playing. I just wanted to keep a lot. How have you managed to come up with so many ideas for different areas to explore with a daily format when, when you have 1,200 episodes of you know one hour long interviews where you're talking to different engineers uh i mean at some point does it feel like you've exhausted a lot of the low-hanging fruit and you're having to climb higher and higher in the tree to find interesting topics would you ever run out of content that you could make on free code camp uh i i don't know <laughs> i mean given like a long enough timeline i imagine probably at some point it'd feel like we were retreading ground I mean, the field of software development is pretty huge. I guess uh, one way to word this would be like you are a software engineer who has you know a few years of hands-on experience, and your own experience has been like fairly limited, like ad tech and and finance, and then working at Amazon. How are you able to keep drawing from and refreshing your own knowledge and your own curiosity to where you can have constructive interviews with these people in all these different fields? This is just the stuff that I really like to read about and to consume information about. So, you know, if I wasn't hosting conversations with these people, I would be listening to conversations with these people. Yeah, it's just, I love the content. I love the the area. Let's talk about your own personal relationship with podcasts. I know that they kind of helped you in this, this dark period of your life where you weren't really sure what you were doing and where you didn't have a lot of friends. You were in a new city. How do you go about consuming podcasts? Like, what what is your information diet like? How many hours a week would you say you listen to podcasts? How do you listen to them? What tools do you use? Walk us through your uh, podcasting setup. Sure. I use Google Podcasts. I found that to be the best Android podcast app. And I subscribe to tons of podcasts. Whenever I find one that stands out to me, I subscribe to it probably subscribed to 40 or 50 podcasts at this point and most of them only release one to three episodes per week so let's say it's an average of two episodes per week uh or let's say it's two two episodes per week for 50 podcasts that means i'm getting 100 podcasts um over the course of the week 100 divided by seven is um what's that like 13 or something 14 so, you know, like 14, ep- if that means that's 14 episodes coming into my podcast feed per day, I probably listen to four of those, three or four of those per day. Then like the other 10 don't really appeal to me. And then some days none of them appeal to me. And then some days there's like just not any new content that comes out. And then I kind of listen to an audiobook. So yeah, I mean, I'm probably listening to four to eight hours of podcast per day depending on how much in-person interaction I have. I would like there to be more in-person interaction in my life, but I'm pretty selective about the conversations I want to have with people because there's so much good conversation to be had in the podcast realm. That's kind of a dangerous calculus to make because it can wind up with you spending like days in a row hermetically listening to podcasts. So I call that listener's dilemma. Sort of like the prisoner's dilemma. Yeah, I mean, like, what do you do when there's more good conversations to listen to on the internet than in real life? That's like a dangerous proposition. So podcasting allows you to kind of opt into different conversations, I think is how you've described it in the past. 
Uh, you can opt into listening to Jeff Myers and, and uh, Haseeb Qureshi discuss security or discuss fraud prevention or something like that. And calling your grandma is kind of competing with that. <laughs> <laughs> to some extent, man. Seriously. But but here's here's the thing. Here's the thing. We're going to get to a place where people are better at having in-person conversations. This is where podcasting is taking us. This is another reason I love podcasting is more and more people listen to these things. People are going to begin to model their conversations off of the best podcasters. And your in-person conversations will become less divisive. They'll become less combative. They'll become more productive. They'll become more fulfilling. That is the future I'm looking forward to. I've noticed in my own life as more and more people listen to podcasts. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, I've definitely noticed that. Like I listen to probably three to four hours of podcasts a day. I listen on double speed or sometimes like with software engineering daily, I can listen on triple speed. Thanks to your your native app, which is really cool, by the way, if you all haven't heard of it, uh, check it out. When you're listening to like four to eight hours of podcasts, first of all, uh, you can get in a lot more exercise and you can, you know, that's probably average. Like I might have to drive uh, from like Dallas to Oklahoma City to go visit my family or something like that. But it is interesting because conversations generally get like much more effective and productive if you want to look at conversation that way. When you're doing a podcast interview, you're much more cognizant of what you're asking and you generally formulate more specific questions and, and you get into the habit of, oh, I'm going to go talk to Jeff today. Like, what should I ask him about? And and kind of thinking more systematically about how you're going to approach the conversation. Same thing when I listen to a podcast, I'm constantly being exposed to, for example, like the New York Times podcast. I think it's one of the best podcasts out there in terms of just overall quality and, and you know, a general news format. Uh, Michael Barbaro, I think is the name of the guy who hosts it how he does a lot of active listening and how he thinks about what people are saying and then figures out good follow-up questions, things like that. It is interesting. I hadn't really thought about that before you mentioned it a minute ago, but I do think that listening to a lot of podcasts has affected in a positive way. I hope how I approach conversations with people. Me too. It's beautiful. <laughs> so you are a podcast enthusiast to say the least. You, you run probably one of the most rapid fire podcasts. Like there's no huge team behind software engineering daily. Like Michael Barbaro has this giant list that every Friday afternoon, he reads off like every single person involved in producing and doing research for, and you know, uh, editing and recording and all that stuff for you. It's really just you and a few other people and a few contractors you work with or services. Can you talk about your podcast stack and who's around you? in terms of actually preparing and producing the podcast? Yeah. Pranay was the kind of co-founder of Software Engineering Daily, so he joined me a couple weeks in. I've written about this a little bit. Uh, there's an Indie Hackers interview I did that I, I wrote about um, you know my, my early relationship with Pranay and how foundational he was. Pranay and I are still close friends, and I hope to, to work with him as a business partner again someday. I just want to do a quick shout-out to Pranay. He helped us out. He was working with the Hack Summit team, and uh, he got FreeCodeCamp to be one of the charities that was supported by the most recent Hack Summit. And I think we got a few thousand dollars worth of cryptocurrency donations from that. So thanks, Pranay, for your help with that. 
Pranay was one of the best Magic players in Austin. So I knew him from way back in the day, and we had a lot of trust. You know, similar to that shared trust that I have from knowing Hasib, Pranay and I will always be friends, and we'll always have uh, a close bond that comes from our shared history. You know, if I hadn't had him helping me out in the early days of Software Engineering Daily, I mean, you've told me this, like, you feel like a disembodied voice on the internet sometimes, right? Or like not even a voice, like your disembodied personality on the internet. Uh, I, I hope I'm not like disclosing anything that li- like you would like to yeah, be private. No, but I, like, I spend a lot of time answering questions through email and I probably have like maybe a couple hundred conversations a day in terms of just maybe just like a Twitter DM exchange or somebody who's emailing back and forth trying to, trying to help them get unstuck with something. But yeah, I, I definitely feel like, I often think of like Lawnmower Man which is kind of a cheesy old nineties movie, but like he, he leaves his body behind and enters the realm of pure imagination <laughs> and information. And he's, he's stuck in the, the computer system. Uh, sorry for the spoiler alert if anybody hasn't seen, but, but I often feel like he, he, he at some point he's like, I've got a billion calls I need to make. <laughs> I feel like that, that's me <laughs> to some extent, like, because in terms of my actually actual daily life, like it, talking to people yeah there might be like five or six conversations like i'll talk to my kids i'll talk to my wife i'll talk to like the guy at the ice cream shop (laughs) who's giving us ice cream after our dinner you know things like that but in general there's this huge disconnect between my waking life where i'm mainly just sitting in rooms staring at rectangles (laughs) and clicking little square buttons on a on a piece of uh, aluminum Uh, and then there's the actual like virtual world if you will, where I'm zooming around, swooping between buildings of data. And all that's really changed over the last, whatever, four or five years for you is the rectangles have gotten more rounded. Some of them are circles now. There's more VoIP calls, including, you know, together with the emails. But, like, you're still living this virtual existence, which is why I think, you know, this is, again, speaking of the shared experience thing, this is probably why, you know, you and I, hopefully, in a decade... We're going to be sitting down, maybe it's virtual reality, maybe we're in a flying car or whatever, but we're going to be like thinking back, like, remember when we were talking about the blah, blah, blah. I mean, because the, you know, to get back to your question, I think my existence is fairly similar to yours. Like you have kind of a, you know, you have some people who have been involved in the community for a long time or they're full-time employees or they've, you know, rotated between contractors and full-time employees. And, you know, I should of course mention Erica. Erica is is the other full-time employee of Software Engineering Daily. She basically makes sure that everything runs on time. She makes sure that our advertisers are happy that we're getting advertisers. She has been a massive source of creativity and support for the business. You know, she's cuz Pranay left Pranay left to become a software engineer. Like Pranay started joined Software Engineering Daily when he was not a software engineer. He was like he had studied chemical engineering and wanted to learn software engineering and um, uh, he might make a good guess on the podcast, but he's got, I mean, he's got quite a great background, like uh, his story, you know, he made it through, through a boot camp and made it to, um, to snap and learned to be a really good engineer at snap. Um, you know, now he's, he's back in San Francisco. So, um, yeah, Erica is, is the other, you know, full-time per- thing. And then we have, um, you know, we have a couple kind of contractors that, um, you know, help us with the things that we can describe well, like, you know, the things that we can say, hey, like, just update the spreadsheet or like edit this podcast episode or whatever. 
the stuff that's more mechanistic that we can outsource, but there's not a lot of that. It's mostly kind of just me and Erica and, uh, we keep, you know, we run a tight ship and, uh, we like to keep it that way because we want to scale the revenues without scaling the expenses. We'll grow to more people eventually, but like it's, it's a tight ship right now. Yeah. And there's a tremendous value in having a very small team. And this is something that a lot of people who run very small nonprofits or very small uh, for-profit companies just kind of intrinsically know is that the more people you bring on, the more communication overhead there is. And I was thinking the same thing, man. I was just thinking communication overhead. Yeah. And in many ways, I liken it to cells. Like cells only get so big because the surface area and the volume ratio, right? If you think about uh, an organization and the number of people who need to be in the loop on a number of different things, the larger your organization gets, the more difficult that gets. And soon you've got like these big organizational charts and you've got middle managers. When you have a small organization, you can just talk directly to people. Uh, or in Free Code Camp's case, you know, it's like we're a seven person team, including myself, and everybody just reports to me. But Really, I, in a way, I report to them because I'm just like, hey, what are you working on? What do you need help with, basically? And a lot of people, I think, mistakenly aspire to having like a giant company like, I'm going to employ a thousand people, something like that. And I think what you're doing instead with just you and Erica, focusing on keeping things as tight as possible and, and growing your revenue without significantly growing your expenses, that's that's very wise. Well, it's not that I, I don't want to have a large organization around what we're doing here. It's just that you said it perfectly. There's nothing nothing more to say. If I can just continue just a little bit like, yes, there's always more marginal money you could make by bringing people on at some point. But there's also the peace of mind of having a small team and being able to keep your mission very clear and be relatively focused on what you do. And you're not just like creating new organizational divisions just to go chase after some small potential increase to your total revenue. One thing that I've found is if you have a small organization, the risk is dramatically lower because you are able to much more quickly adapt and you just have a much lower risk of like having to lay a bunch of people off, which is never a fun thing to do. Anyway, I'm kind of rambling, and I'm I'm going to edit a lot of the stuff I've been no, saying. No, no, don't don't edit it. Don't edit any of it. I I, <laughs> I, I, I concur completely. I mean, it's just there's something magical about having a small team that is doing something that scales. Like it's not like we're inhibited from scaling by our small team. Every week, more episodes come out on your end. Every week, more code gets written. There's more curriculum. And that's compounding. You're creating autonomous units that are essentially compound interest. It's like you're building a robot army, kind of. Like whether you're building a robot army of media files that are going to be played back, or you're building a robot army of pieces of curriculum that people are going to consume. Like why hire humans when you can build a robot army? That's true. And one of the whole points of software being so powerful and being such an important part of any scalable business is that you can write once, read many. For example, the, the FreeCodeCamp forum is probably one of the best examples of this. Somebody will ask a question and somebody else within the community will answer. And when that happens hundreds of times a day, pretty soon 
the fat head of the questions that can be uh, answered have been answered. And, and when people start to answer a question, it'll say, hey, is your question similar to this? And people are able to get help without that expenditure of effort in answering the questions. Um, and, and that's where like Stack Overflow and, and uh, the Free Cooking Forum and all these other places come in handy is you can help one person, but indirectly you're potentially helping thousands of people. And, and we have just little exchanges on the free code camp forum that thousands of people view every month because it's just a particularly helpful exchange. And so a lot of what a successful organization does is think about what work can be done once and then they can continue to reap the benefit from that. And that's a different mindset from like buying an asset and holding it like a lot, you know, in finance programmatically figuring out a way to do that work over and over again, even while you're only doing it one time, finding opportunities like that where you can truly scale your effort. And like with software engineering daily, there are so many entry points. People could be searching through their podcast app for uh, a talk, like just searching the query Kubernetes, right? And there's a very good chance they're going to come across a software engineering daily episode and they listen to that and they're like, this is really good. Like, this is a really good interview. I learned a lot from this. What's this Software Engineering Daily podcast all about? And next thing you know, they're diving through and, and they're kind of consuming your long tail of interviews on all other kinds of DevOps concepts. And, and then maybe they're subscribing and they're listening to new episodes as they come out. And so this is one of the things that's really genius about how you've approached Software Engineering Daily is by by virtue of having such a broad swath of interviewees and topics that people talk about, you're really maximizing the likelihood that people are going to discover software engineering daily and ensuring that once they do discover it, they're going to have just this huge wealth of value that, that they get from it. And all you're doing is recording the same five interviews a week. You're just being really consistent. And over time, the value is compounding. Man, I hope so. All right. Well, this is an interview. This is not me just waxing poetically about the benefits of uh, how you all are approaching creating. Hey, I love. I mean, I love it. You, you. I could have said it better myself. So, what I'd like to talk about just before we move on from software engineering daily, there's so much to talk about there, uh, and I hope everybody listening to this goes and subscribes to it and and listens to it. It's, in my opinion, the single best podcast to listen to if you just want to get a whole lot of exposure to a whole lot of concepts in software development. And if you want to get it like straight from the mouth of the people who are doing it day in and day out, like engineers at Uber, engineers at Tesla, uh, engineers who are working on satellites and things like that, right? Be sure to check it out. But I, I wanted to just ask you a couple quick lightning round questions about Software Engineering Daily before we move on. All right. Who is the most famous person you've interviewed on software engineering daily in your opinion well i just interviewed uh sonal choxy from the a16z podcast i've interviewed seth godin so i would say those two come those two people come to mind right on and a16z is uh andreessen horowitz's podcast <laughs> they call it a16z but it's just because it's a 16 letters and then the letter z at the end for anybody who's curious what that means. What would you say is like one of the the most surprising interviews where you weren't expecting anything out of the ordinary and suddenly things got real, really quick? Oh, oh man. Uh, wow. Well, there was one, I mean, 
you may have heard this this story about this. It was like a YC startup around basically this girl. Uh, one of her best friends died, and um, I think his name was Roman. And so she took all his text messages and trained a neural net with the text messages and started talking to it. And it was like eerily human-like. And we just talked about like, I mean, it was like a Black Mirror episode, right? Like that literally actually is a Black Mirror episode. Yeah. Uh, that, That happens in a Black Mirror episode. And she like did it in real life. And I think she's working on a company around it called, I think it's called Replica with a K. And that was just weird. Like, that's unusual. And it's, it was very, it was a human, I mean, it was very human conversation. Like, losing somebody is awful. It's just awful. It's, uh, it's like, you just have no choice but to deal with a period of unbearable pain. So, you know, that's real. That's as real as it gets. What is an interview that you've done where you found it like surprising, like you were expecting like a more straight laced interview and it just ended up being like the most like entertaining off the wall type discussion. Yeah. Vince surf, maybe. So I interviewed Vince surf and, uh, that was back. Uh, it was really random. We were doing Skype and my cat actually jumped on my back in the middle of the interview and we were doing a Skype video call. So I'm like talking to this, I think Vince Cerf has won the Turing award and that my, my cat jumps on my back and just like starts like biting my ear while on being on my shoulder. And I'm talking to like the Turing award winning inventor of TCP. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> it actually provided some interesting <laughs> comedic relief and, uh, deviation so yeah, I guess I could say that one. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I would definitely categorize him among the most famous people that have been on there. That's pretty awesome. I'll have to go back and listen to that. I didn't realize he'd been on your podcast. He's he's on one of our programmer playing cards. Uh, no we, way. We created that. Yeah, we created that deck of fifty-two different programmers throughout the ages, which is mostly since the sixties, who are really instrumental in in forwarding the craft of. Uh, huh software development. So, I mean, yeah, he's, he's on there. He shares a card with Bob Kahn because they basically teamed up on most of their important work. Um, and I think they probably jointly accepted that Turing award, if I recall, mm. but, um, that's cool. And then who is the person you've had on the podcast the most? Maybe Haseeb. I don't know. You've been on two or three times. Um, I think Haseeb. What interview uh, were you maybe just really unsure about whether you'd be able to pull it off? Like you felt like you were really out of your depth and you managed to ask well-informed questions anyway, and and it turned out to be perfectly fine. What's an example of that? Well, Stephen Wolfram, I asked him if we're living in a simulation, and he goes, that was a poorly formed question. (laughs) So that was it. That's all you got. Did he actually? Like, <laughs> that was his response, and I'm just like, uh, uh sorry. <laughs> I'm gonna pull that one on you a little bit later in the podcast. All right, right. Well, um, yeah, <laughs> I think your the answer would probably be pretty disappointing. Um, so 
now that we've talked extensively about software engineering daily, and I know that that's probably the biggest thing that you're known for, but you've done some other projects and, and you're doing them and uh, your entrepreneurial instincts are strong and uh, you're recalcitrant. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about ad for Prive. So you came from the ad tech world and, and you knew a lot about advertising. Of course, podcasting is an industry primarily driven by advertisement and it's, it's one of the few places where I don't think there is a lot of ad fraud, although you might be able to answer that. Tell us a little bit about uh, AdForprise and, and how you came up with the idea and how it works. For sure. Uh, so AdForprise is still live. You can go to AdForprise.com and you can download the AdForprise mobile app. Uh, it's only on iOS. And the premise for AdForprise was basically, it is basically, I mean, I keep, I keep, I'm keeping this thing alive because I'm going to take another stab at it eventually. The premise is that the end state of influencer marketing is um, user-generated content, widespread user-generated content. Adverprise is a place to create your own ads. And in my experience with with ad fraud and ad tech, uh, I came to a thesis that at a certain point, the industry is going to realize that it's not possible to prevent fraud. Because preventing fraud is ultimately about solving the Turing test. The Turing test is like, can you determine if something is a bot or a human? We can't do that. I mean, to the extent that we can do that, that's implying that we have real identity. And real identity is, I mean, to the extent that we'll solve real identity on the internet, like blockchain-related solutions are going to develop to allow people to have anonymity. So we're not going to have consistent like human identifiable you know proof based systems on the internet i don't think you know unless we're talking about the entire world moving towards a totalitarian you know chinese style um you know biometrically powered state so we're going to have this inability to determine if somebody is a bot or a human and so where that takes you is the most powerful form of advertising will be brand advertising. Uh, the most pervasive form of advertising will be brand advertising. There is a degree to which there will be attribution-based, uh, click-based, URL-based, promo code-based, trackable advertising where we're measuring the conversions. But I believe that the world will eventually move towards a place where brand advertising is the most important. And... The way that brand advertising works today is ghastly, and uh, I believe that the market will move towards user-generated advertising. And we could go on a whole like long, long, long tangent here about my beliefs about you know advertising, and I've already gone probably deeper than I should. But I had enough conviction about this market that I plowed basically all of my savings into this business enterprise. I made a few kind of trips to the VC table and kind of tried to raise money for it. But, you know, people don't want to put money into ad tech today. You know, people saw me as a distracted podcaster, basically. And, um, you know, I just didn't really want to have these conversations with investors. And so I just decided to plow my own money into this thing. Building a user-generated content marketplace is hard. Doing it without VC money is suicide. So yeah, that's what I did <laughs> for uh, like, uh, you know, 18 months or something, 
Ran out of money. Great experience. Fantastic experience. Can't wait to do it again. If there's any investors listening to this, call me up. Uh, kind of waiting for the fodder. Uh, <laughs> not, not exactly. Not. I mean, more like Very I'm... Very compelling pitch there. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> um, maybe I should do an ICO. <sighs> yeah. So, God, I'm so bad at pitching, aren't I? That's totally what you forgot to do, is you forgot to tie ad for prize to a cryptocurrency. Actually, I thought about it, and I was just like, this is just a bridge too far. So, yeah, but uh, that's ad for prize. Um, I mean, dude, go on. I mean, if people who are listening, like, if you want to see some awesome ads, go on adforprize.com. Like, go scroll through some stuff. I wish I had an iPhone still, because I can't, I don't use the app anymore, because I don't have an iPhone, but I'm going to get an iPhone at some point uh, again. It's like almost my number one reason to, to want an iPhone um to use so your I own get, software to use my own software to make ads <laughs> yeah so uh Adverprise is still live of course actually one uh, one more actually I, this is the shout out i should have made there's somebody entrepreneurial in the audience that is looking for a business that is incredibly hard to run but is possible to make work and possible to take over the advertising market feel free to reach out to me jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com all right. And the other project, of course, which is, uh, I believe has got a lot more uh, traction at this point and is not as hard of a problem from what I understand in terms of like technical questions and, and product market fit and everything uh, is Find Collabs. Talk about Find Collabs. Yeah. So actually, around the time I left Amazon, I, I, like Software Engineering Daily was the thing I was going to start for sure. Uh, I knew that was like the quickest route to profitability. But I had these two other ideas. I had Ad for Prize and I had what became Find Collabs. Originally, I was calling it Handoff, but I couldn't get the handoff.com domain. The idea for Find Collabs was basically like, why is it so hard to find collaborators on the internet? Probably a bunch of people that are listening to this like have projects. They've got side projects. They've got projects they're working on on their own that like maybe would be cool if there's another pe- person involved. But the idea of finding collaborators on the internet like not like paid collaborators not like you know people on upwork or fiverr although i love upwork and fiverr i love the knowledge work gig economy i'm super passionate about it but it's just strange that we don't have a good way of finding co-founders of finding collaborators of finding fellow musicians i'm a musician i've been writing music for uh, 16 years and I cannot find people to work with on music, on the internet. I've tried. It's very hard. It's very hard to find people who are who are reliable. It's very hard to find people who are persistent. That's strange. Like, that is not the end state of the internet. There is more collaboration that's going to occur on the internet. It does not make sense that the best movies or the movies with the most broad distribution are... On one end, you've got these gigantic movie studios where, you know, tons of stuff is happening on-prem, you know, at these movie studios. On the other end, you have, like, solo creators, like, you know, Instagram video makers and YouTube stars that are basically doing things by themselves, maybe with a small team, sort of like I have with Software Engineering Daily. That's not the end state. There's going to be collaboration. There's going to be groups of two and three and five. There's going to be like projects where, you know, co-founders meet on the internet. That's already happened, you know, and find collabs is the place 
since nobody else was doing it, or you know, the, the platforms that I've seen are not fulfilling it in an adequate way. Find Collabs is my effort at that, you know, because I, you know, I started Software Engineering Daily, got a little money, started AdForprise, lost all my money, and then was like, well, you know, online collaboration still not happen. Uh, let's do that. Uh, so that's what Find Collabs is. It's a place to find collaborators and build projects. What's kind of a case study of one of the projects that's gone forward on that on your platform that you're proud of? One good one is uh, a project called depths-cloud it's about dependencies uh it's like an open source project for uh kind of finding all the github repositories that your project depends on so it's like building it's like how do you build the dependency graph of your project essentially maybe that exists elsewhere but like it's it seems like a pretty cool project she's got a you know quite a strong thesis on it uh the, the creator maya uh, I think she's been in the software industry for a decade, and she found one or two people that are working with her on on the code base. I think she wants to turn into a business at some point. Awesome. And if people want to start collaborating on different projects, uh, how would you recommend they proceed? Go to findcollabs.com. If you're looking for a project, there's a ton of projects there. You can go into project topic chat rooms. If you're interested in React, you can go into the React room and, you know, talk, find people who, who are just interested in React. Or you can just scroll through the projects and just look for projects where they're looking for a React developer or they're looking for a Kubernetes developer, they're looking for a JavaScript developer, or they're looking for a designer or a musician or a marketer or a biz dev person. And, you know, connect with people, take a look at these projects. Or what I hope is you've got a project yourself and you can post post your cool project, post what you're working on, whether it's music or art or, you know, most of the projects there are open source software because most of the people who I have an audience that reaches are interested in, in creating software. Awesome. And on the topic of collaboration, I understand that you recently created a musical album. The Prion is your uh, music handle. And uh, you created an album completely sourcing contributors from Fiverr? That's right. What's the story behind that? Well, actually, that's kind of one of the the genesis points that really pushed me towards actually starting Find Collabs was I've been looking for musicians to work with since college, and people kept flaking on me. People kept saying, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll hang out with you. We'll write some music on Saturday. And, you know, so I'm like, Saturday rolls around, and I'm like, all right, I'm ready. Let's do it. Show up. And, you know, people would flake. And so the nice thing about Fiverr is you pay people. And if you pay people, they show up. They work with you. So I'm a producer. Uh, I focus on composition, um, production of soundscapes, music theory, uh, drums, synthesizer composition, effects, mastering. I'm not a good singer. I can write lyrics. I mean, I'm okay at writing lyrics, but I'm a producer. I'm very serious about music production. That is that is one of the things that I take the most seriously in my life. And after I ran out of money on uh, AdForprize, you know, I, I was still was doing software engineering daily. Like, that never stopped, right? So I had, like, I knew I could just save up money again, like, assuming that the economy didn't collapse and I was able to keep my advertisers. You know, I was like, okay, I'll 
just save up some money and in the meantime i need a i need an entrepreneurial outlet but like i can't just like burn all my money on some other entrepreneurial venture uh, again at the same time uh so i went after this this idea of an album and the you know i i, I had some songs i was working on and for this one song the green room i was writing it and i was like man i really like the lyrics for the song like i had written some lyrics and i was like i really like these lyrics but like i'm not the one to sing them i am definitely not the person to sing these like i'm totally out of key and like i've just not the person to sing them where can i find somebody to sing this music uh and so i went on fiverr and i found a singer and his name is adam adam benjamin and he was amazing and it was like 50 bucks or 100 bucks or something and i like it was this magical experience where i just paid somebody some money had them sing and i had a piece of music that i became really really proud of and the broader thing that made me proud of it was that it was no longer only mine maybe you felt this way about free code camp but like open source software and collaborative projects have this magical element to them where when you invite in more people, maybe this is just obvious to most people, when you find collabs, it is so much better than building something on your own. It is orders of magnitude better. I mean, I'm all about individual creativity and expression of the human, like the the human individual and like, you know, these master works of art that are entirely the work of one person. But when you get numerous people, when you get Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones, when you get the Beatles together, you know, when you get Linus Torvalds and whatever, like the the, the second in command of the Linux project, like magic happens. And uh and so I scaled that to, to an entire album. I just I was like, I'm definitely going to do this for the next year. And so I just wrote 14 more songs or, you know, I can't remember how many songs are on that album. I got a lot better at writing music. I got a lot better at working with people. You know, I worked with uh, a rapper. I worked with a couple kind of uh, rock slash indie style singers, a couple of uh, female vocalists who kind of were like sort of, a, I don't know, you know, sultry female vocalists. Fleetwood Mac style stuff, you know, it's just like magical. And I just was like, why aren't more people seeing the gig economy this way? Like people see the gig economy as this sort of like enslavement thing where like I'm I'm summoning my Uber driver and it's like indentured servitude and like, no, it's collaboration together with a financial transaction. Like it's less hierarchical than, you know, normal employment. Like, it's it's beautiful. So the Gig Economy album is about the gig economy. The lyrics are roughly coordinated with the gig economy. They're roughly coordinated with what was going on in my life at the time. They're roughly coordinated with the music I like. And um, yeah, it was, it was just an... Exp- I mean, most albums, they explore these things that everybody's explored, like love and romance and, you know love (laughs) uh and romance the gig economy is like mostly about the gig economy and some other allegorical stuff but like yeah i'm really proud of that piece and so i'm working on another album i'm working on some other music related projects 
um, I'm, I love music so much. Awesome. Well, it sounds like, uh, you have like really good inspiration for fun collabs and I'm really excited to hear about some of the other projects that come out of it. I wanted to ask you a few just really quick questions to close out. Sure. Uh, because you've gone through so many different progressions over your life. And, and so I'm going to take the same question and I'm just going to mold it to the different things. So for software engineers who are listening to this, what would you say the biggest, most applicable lesson you learned from your time playing poker was that you think would apply to them? Positive sum thinking. Same stuff I said at the beginning. Be positive sum. Even the competitive fields that you enter bring a non-competitive or even uh, anti-competitive, not anti-competitive, I guess non-competitive mindset. Be a, Bring a positive sum mindset. And what would you say... That- the biggest lesson that you think a software engineer could take away from your experience at Amazon? Invent broadly. How about with software engineering daily, what's been one of the most profound lessons that you've learned there that you think software engineers would benefit from? Explore broadly and don't be afraid to sample content in a way where your retention may not be strong. And Take the art of conversation seriously. Don't just sit down. When you're having a conversation with somebody, don't just sit down and let your mind spill out onto the table. Think carefully about what questions you're asking and the answers that you give because you only have so much time in a conversation and in your life. So just think deeply about the conversations that you're having and how you can have better ones. And finally, as... An entrepreneur, both with Adverprise and and now with Fine Collabs, what do you think the the biggest lesson from that has been? Don't give up on bringing your ideas to life because the instruments we have for creativity today are beyond anything we've had in the past. And if somebody tells you that you can't do something, you're telling me that based on what? Like based on the way the world was five years ago, based on the way the world was two years ago. Like you can't tell me I'm not going to do something. Like look at what look at what AWS did. You know, look what AWS is doing. Look at how that's changing the world. You know, look at Airbnb. Look at the iPhone. Like you're going to tell me I can't do something. I mean, you might be right. I might fail, but I'll come to that judgment myself. Awesome. Well, Jeff, thank you again so much for taking the time out of your day to sit down with me. I recommend everybody who's listening to this, follow Jeff on Twitter. Definitely subscribe to Software Engineering Daily if you haven't subscribed to it yet. I would also recommend everybody take a look at Find Collabs and consider jumping on a project on there. Thank you, man. And I want to say these last four or five years have been in many times isolating and I felt like you've been somebody who has been reliably present and available and responsive. And we live in a world where, I mean, part of the reason I encourage this kind of positive some thinking is to some extent we have to be zero-sum or negative-sum thinkers because we're we're fending for ourselves, right? You're building your platform. I'm building my platform. I've got my emails to answer. You've got your emails to answer. 
you've got your family, I got my family. You know, there is just competition. There is division. And you're somebody and that's just inherent. That's inherent in business. That's inherent in life. But if you take it too far, you will go crazy and you will find yourself entirely alone. And you are somebody who uh, I felt I've been able to, you know, bridge the gap of, you know, just that inherent competitive notion. The only, the only way you can find those kinds of like shared grounds is you take actions for each other, you know, in this super competitive, like in this Silicon Valley transactional environment, the only way to transcend that transactionality is through actions because words are cheap. You know, you've, you've, I'm sure you've encountered just as many people as I have where, oh yeah, they're so friendly on the internet. They're so friendly over email. They're so friendly on the phone. And then they're just in their actions. They're not friendly. And they don't necessarily carry through on what you expect them to do. That's right. Yeah. There may not be like reciprocation uh, or worse. There may be like insinuation or reciprocation that never comes through. <laughs> yes. I totally know what you mean there. And, yeah. and so it, just, just to close out, you know, I, I value the actions that you have taken as a friend in this highly transactional, highly competitive world. And, uh, you know, I'm, you know, if you need, I got your back if you need anything. Yeah. And I just want to say that I think that people really get caught up in competition and thinking in terms of scarcity, a scarcity mindset, as opposed to an abundance mindset. I've written about this. You may have written about it as well, Jeff, but the future, there's just so much potential, so much beyond what we have. Assuming we don't screw it up. Yeah. It's a bind. It's binary, right? Like it's either... It's either abundance or it's like heat death of the universe kind of thing, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, life only gets so many shots before we get the heat death. But, I mean, presuming that we don't blow ourselves up. Presuming that we find some way to mitigate the climate change situation. Big right? assumption. Yeah, big, big assumptions. Big assumptions, but in my opinion, necessary assumptions in order to be able to sit down and work constructively. <laughs> yes. If you're just panicking about climate change, <laughs> yes. if you're just panicking about nuclear proliferation, which are very real, very serious issues. Right. You can lose sight of what's right in front of you and what you can get done. On the topic of com- competition, and I, I'm going to write about this at some point because I think this is one of the most widely under- misunderstood aspects of you know software development, of business, of just life. Like everything is put into these competitive narratives. It's just the way we think, you know, like the home team is going to beat the visitor team or um, Amazon is going to beat Blockbuster. Maybe uh, that's not the best. Like Netflix is going to beat Blockbuster, right? <laughs> uh, I, I think, I think Blockbuster yeah. beat itself. Um, Carl, yeah. I can't beat Blockbuster. But if, if we, if you try to look at all these stories, you know, conflict is inherent in all of our narratives. Conflict is what makes novels exciting. It's what makes movies exciting. It's what makes video games exciting uh, for the most part. Uh, you can have video games where it's not a conflict. It's just putting blocks down and watching them disappear when you get them in lines. But, you know, most stories are driven by conflict. And I think that that has mistrained us as human beings to see other people around us as our competitors, to see other organizations around our organization as competitors. And in a vast majority of situations, competition doesn't really matter. And this isn't just my 
sentiment. You know, Joel Spolsky, a developer and entrepreneur whom I respect deeply. He he created like you know fog bugs, and then he created Stack Overflow and Trello. He's talked a lot about this um, that competition doesn't really matter, and that people think about competition a lot because they think that somebody's coming to eat their lunch. Uh, they think that there's somebody working day and night to take away from them what they have. Uh, but in, in reality, things are very open-ended. There's an incredible amount of opportunity at any one point. It's not like we're in a zero-sum game. You know, We are in a positive-sum game. There may be zero-sum skirmishes, but in general, things like the amount of abundance in the world is increasing. The amount of productivity is increasing. GDP, which just measures productivity, that's all it is, is a measure of productivity, is increasing globally. And the opportunities are continuing to increase. And and I think that um, you are somebody, uh, the rare somebody who seems to get this and doesn't seem to approach every single interaction as, oh, you know, let's let's see how I can jujitsu my way out of however this person is going to try to screw me next, right? Uh, or Or let me see how I can figure out how I can get more out of this transaction than they are. No, it's possible that, you know, even if, you leave a lot on the table, both parties are better off as a result. So this is kind of a sermon, but it's related to what you said, because I genuinely believe that if people stopped worrying so much about competition and started instead of looking at their competitors, looked out at the horizons ahead and saw how much open ocean there was, so to speak, uh, that they could go out and sail, then I think that we'd all be better off. I mean, we we could be focusing on mining asteroids. We could be focusing on other big breakthroughs in, in crop yields and things like that that'll increase the amount of abundance in the world rather than you know fighting over quote unquote market share. Uh, I'm optimistic that we'll do that. It's much easier to convince your shareholders though that this this is the bad person, and if you knock them out, then you'll be in a better position than it is to get them to take a, a leap of faith on something nobody's ever done before. But those things that nobody's ever done before, those are what is going to make it possible for us to keep moving forward and, and is going to unlock the next trillion dollar industry and unlock the next step change in society and uh, alleviate a whole lot of the suffering that is all around us that will continue to be all around us unless we do something about it. Well said. So uh, any closing thoughts before uh, we end the podcast, Jeff? No, I mean, you you put it quite well. I mean, something I'll just say is like something I have identified as basically like if I compare the pleasure that I've gotten from success at someone else's expense or like success that can even be framed in a zero-sum context, whether or not it actually is in a zero-sum context versus writing a piece of music that I'm really proud of. When I sit down and I write a piece of music, and I get up, and I come back to my computer later on, and I listen to it. You feel the same way with coding, where, you, where you're like, oh my god, this thing compiled, and like the thing rendered on the screen, and I'm going to go have dinner and be proud the whole meal. And then I'm going to come back, and it's still going to work. And then you come back, and it still works. Or you'll come back, and you listen to it, and you're like, wow, it sounds even better than when I wrote it. Like, that is the creation of something. That is the in the the instantiation of something that takes away nothing from anyone so like that's just that is what has that's the thing that those are the things that always make me feel the best 
So I don't know. It's just like you need transactionality, but like, man, the creativity is just like the thing that makes me feel so happy and so fulfilled inside. It's like I'm kind of playing, you know, the three-level chess or the three-dimensional chess or whatever, but or I'm, like, I'm kind of doing the extra-dimensional jujitsu when I'm saying like I'm actually like trying really hard to not be zero-sum and to not be competitive. But also like the proof point is just when I sit down and write a piece of music and feel like something new has been created and it just doesn't take away from anybody else and it just is really satisfying. That, to me, is like the proof point that, you know, this is the way, this is the thing I should be pursuing and, like, that's where I should be getting my gratification from rather than competitive outlets. So, anyway, I'm really glad we could touch on that topic. Absolutely, Jeff. Jeff, it's been amazing having you here on the podcast. Uh, This was long overdue. I am really excited to continue listening to Software Engineering Daily, waking up every single day of the week and having a new expert that you're yeah. interviewing. Uh, and you yourself have become an expert at interviewing people. Like, if technical interviewing is a discrete skill set, I would imagine you're at, at the top of your field in that. And uh, yeah, I'm just excited to watch your career continue to progress and evolve. And I'm excited to see. More and more people use uh, Find Collabs and keep up the great work, man. Same to you, my friend. All right. Well, hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to the Free Code Camp podcast. Uh, again, be sure to check out Software Engineering Daily. And if you enjoyed this, just go out and tell your friends to listen to the Free Code Camp podcast and have a beautiful day. Cheers, everybody.